Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm outside of the main branch of the San Francisco Public Library in San Francisco's Civic Center Plaza. It's right across from City Hall. It's a place where a lot of people from different walks of life, homeless folks, law students, city officials, all pass through, but they don't actually have a lot of opportunity to interact meaningfully with each other. But there's something different happening here lately on the sidewalk outside of the library. Make that chain. Here we go. Here we go. There are these big yellow metal installations set up that are designed to try to encourage us to connect with each other. We're creating a human chain. Okay, so we're gonna do this. So here we are with these two hands that are made out of metal. And we gotta, I gotta grab one on this side. It's like a weird arm sticking out of a pole. I'm gonna grab onto it. Oh, and you guys are grabbing onto the other end and we made a chain and the music came on. And one by one, all of these people start coming in off the sidewalk and we all grab each other's hands and start dancing. It's really cool. All right. We're jamming. We're jamming. And then look at the smiles on the people that walk by. We're jamming with you. We're jamming. too. <laughs> how about how fun is that awesome that's the human connection right music and food and as we're talking yeah. a man sees us he's got a cane his hand is trembling a little bit I, I'm, I'm a union worker hurt injured on the job and i live in my car um the streets turn our heart to stone so we don't get hurt you know and so as you cry out you're breaking that you're chipping away at that stone so that we can learn to love again because we don't know love. Love always hurt us. Brother, you care through your toes to your nose. I see it. That's what These two guys who've never met each other before are suddenly sharing their stories with each other, and they end up hugging in this really public place. They're both tearing up a little bit. here for me because I needed to meet you today. I needed to hear what you had to say, and I needed to feel what you had to share. And I mean feel it, which I did, and I do. And I promise you that I'm a better person for it. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Today on our show, people coming together, getting beyond that us versus them mindset, and making connections with people who don't necessarily share their experience. 
going to start our show today by talking about an effort that's a little bit more intentional than just trying to get people to have a conversation in a public plaza. It's a project that's bringing people together to actually sit down and have dinner, even though they might be on opposite sides of a political divide or a cultural divide. I actually got to go to one of those dinners with producer Bianca Taylor back in 2017. It's all part of a project called Make America Dinner Again. It's 6 p.m. and the dinner guests are just arriving at this downtown San Francisco loft. A young Bolivian woman who works at Facebook. A bar owner who describes himself as a trifecta. Boy Scout, frat boy, and Marine. A UC Berkeley graduate student whose family voted for President Trump. A conservative lawyer and a transgender adoptee. They've never met each other until now. After the gourmet pizzas and salads are delivered, the facilitator, Haley Stewart, ushers the guests to a big round table and lays down some ground I rules. I really try not to make judgment statements. Don't say, you're bad, you're wrong, you're crazy. Try and put those into I statements. Um, so this, this made me feel. Justine Lee co-founded Make America Dinner Again, a day after the presidential election. She says she wanted to put her energy into something productive to heal what she saw as a huge national divide. Dinner felt right. People can look around and just recognize how special it is to get you know, to step outside their bubble and outside of their daily work grind and um, just come together. All of tonight's dinner guests have applied online to be here. They enjoy their pizza over small talk, and once the plates are cleared, are excited to do the work of bridging the differences they know they walked in here with. In the first exercise, they're paired up and asked to find one thing they have in common. I listen in on Walt Shefflow and Min Matson's conversation. You grew up in South Dakota, right? I'm from North Dakota. Midwest. Not only the Midwest, the Dakotas. But other than that, these men are very different. Min is transgender, liberal, and was adopted from Korea as a child. A few years ago, he adopted a son of his own, Aiden. Min's arms are decorated with colorful tattoos, and he wears a purple checkered shirt, his favorite color. Walt, he's a white conservative who voted for President Trump. He's a father of four and works as a lawyer in San Mateo. They're still talking about the Dakotas when Haley gives the next instructions. We're going to give each of you guys 10 minutes, and you're going to share answers to two questions. What has shaped your identity, and what has shaken it? Walt starts. He says he's been upset by how hostile the Bay Area felt to conservatives after the 2016 election. It was very disappointing to me to hear the things that were said to me in particular and to my friends. Meanest things I can possibly imagine. And it really pissed me off. And he feels like we're going backwards. I'm old enough to recall the 60s. You know, there was a lot of stuff happening then. There were race riots. I really thought that those days had gone away. Um, But we're right back at it. You know, there are a lot of colleges I wouldn't send my kids to anymore. Berkeley is one of them. I know people think that most of the racism is in the South or the country. I think most of it's here. Then it's Walt's turn to interview men. What about your identity has been shaken, challenged, or enhanced? As a person of color, we see the the most recent demonstrations um, of clear signs of very divisive racism, as you talked about. There's a lot of things in the media that talk about um, the target of trans people, including the military. Also, um, seeing in the media, you know, the fact that my son is Latino, he's, he's Mexican, he's from Texas. His birth family, parts of his birth family are from Mexico. I think seeing that who he is is under attack and he doesn't even know it yet. But then there's a connection. 
is your identity do you if somebody says so what are you or some I'm not thinking the right words I'm sure would you say transgender first I would say I'm a father first you're a father there you go I say way to go because that's how I would identify too it seems like Walton Min could have talked about fatherhood all night but Haley Stewart the facilitator interrupts the group to take them one step further into something she calls radical empathy. She tells them that when they regroup, each person will share their partner's story, but in the first person. The idea is that if you can listen and then share out someone else's story as your own, you can internalize it and create a deeper empathy. Um, Do we have any brave volunteers to go first? I am Min Matson. Um, I was adopted in Seoul, South Korea. Um, I grew up as a young woman and then transgendered. And I'm a father. Um, I have a son who is uh, four years old. Um, It's uh, transgender seem to be targets. Uh, And uh, since I am transgender, I think that is a difficult thing to do. Uh, I am proudest of being a father and a son. Then it's Min's turn to tell Walt's story in the first person. Many of my family members are small business owners, and a lot of them work in agriculture. So I learned a lot from them and what that looked like, and I always really respected um, the, the work that they do. And um, people talk about the South as being really racist, but I really think that the Bay Area is very racist. On campus, there's race riots, and um, you know, there's a lot of really uh, things that feel like they were done, and now they're back again. After the dinner, I pull each of them aside to ask them what they learned about themselves and their partners. I think that Walt and I would probably be to the least likely people to really connect um, and then I very much appreciate him. I think he is a very, very good-hearted person who has felt hurt and has felt left out in some spaces. Min and I dis- definitely disagree politically on issues, um, but uh, the thing I like about him is he's facing life's challenges in a positive way. He's trying to make things better for himself and his family. And uh, one thing I really liked, he told me tonight, um, the two most significant things in his life was the first time he heard his adopted parents call him son, and he heard his uh, little boy call him father. And I can identify with that. In just a few hours, a white conservative Trump voter and a transgender Korean adoptee broke bread, shared their stories, and came away with something that seems to be lacking these days. Respect. But the guests here tonight raise some questions. Once we find out what we have in common, what would it take to do the difficult work of hashing out our differences? How do you scale this kind of experiment beyond just eight people in San Francisco? The Make America Dinner Again organizers have created an online toolkit to help people host their own dinners. Their hope is that people continue to meet, eat, and that the radical empathy keeps growing. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor. Since we first aired that story, Make America Dinner Again has expanded. And since then, we've had over 100 dinners across the country. We have, I believe, 11 chapters now. And volunteers all over the country are doing their own events and building understanding just a little, little by little, one meal at a time. That's Tria Chang. She's the co-founder of Make America Dinner Again. And I recently got to interview her on stage at an event about empathy and how we can find common ground with each other. 
But after making a friend or just getting to know someone and seeing what they're going through, you can have your intentions be a little better informed. And that might change your vote, it might not. But eventually, I think, we will all benefit on an individual and a societal level by understanding each other better and knowing more about each other. Michelle Borba was also on the stage with Tria. She is an education expert. She's from Palm Springs. And her work starts where we all start, as kids. She literally wrote the book on how we can teach our kids to be more empathetic. And believe me, as a mom of two children, I am reading that book. It is called Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Tell us a bit about children and how they find or learn about empathy. Children are hardwired for empathy. That's the most amazing thing that we now know in terms of science, but unless we cultivate it, it lies dormant. And I think that's the biggest problem we're dealing with right now. In fact, one of the most scathing things that everybody sit up and go, oh my gosh, we've been looking at incoming college freshmen over the last 30 years. Sarah Conrad's been looking at 72 different studies, thousands of children, and we began to see something that happened around the year 2000 that shook us all up. And that is American kids' empathy began to nosedive faster than any other group of kids in the world. It has now nosedived 40%, while narcissism, I'm better than you, has gone up 58%. So worry, yes, because what we now know is that empathy, I think, and I is the best antidote we have to bullying, to hate, to racism. So when that goes, what we have is exactly, I think, what we're having right now is division. We're also not as intentional as we used to be way back when on cultivating empathy. Because I think a lot of it right now is instead of um, what kind thing did you do is what you get in terms of the grade. We're at kind of a trifecta of toxic things that are happening. The culture is changing. Our parenting styles are changing. Technology has come in. You put all those things together, it means we've got to be a little more intentional if we want to raise strong, good kids. Mm. I know it's been so helpful for me to read your book and to think just about some of the little exercises that I can do with my own kids. I wonder if you could share some of those with us. And then I think you also brought an exercise that we might be able to do right here with the audience. The best part about empathy, it's extremely simple if we're just intentional about it and we do it and weave it in. And I began to realize it's really made up of nine habits. They all can be cultivated starting at age one day. I, I give you one day to take a break and then start in on one day because it's, it's really how you interact with your child. The seeds of empathy is our own attachment with our children. But if you look at those nine habits, the first one is emotional literacy. And that's the gateway to empathy. Empathy is feeling with someone. You can't feel with someone if you don't know how the person feels. We're looking down, we're not looking up. And so what we're realizing is a lot of our children, our middle school kids already say they're more comfortable texting than talking. If there's one thing we can do just collectively is start talking emotions far more with your children. And one other little thing that's real simple, just do me one favor because every teen says this is the greatest single tip they've ever heard. As I look at my, oh my gosh. Start talking to someone, but when you talk to someone, always look at the color of the talker's eyes. Take two seconds, just turn to the person on your left and your right and say, what do you think about this location? But talk by just looking at the color of the talker's eyes. Make sure right nobody's now. left out. We're all dang we here. Okay, time. I don't know if you saw something here, but the whole room lit up. Just because you're talking with someone. We're so used to talking at someone. So I think that's the first thing. There's so many other little things. Do you want to raise a well-rounded kid? who's well-behaved, who's also empathetic, 
than always asking your discipline, how would you feel if that happened to you? What do you need in order to feel better? And if you keep asking those same questions, what begins to happen is children begin to get a mindset that I'm a caring person. You act how you see yourself to be. That's the other problem we have. And then it also becomes a trajectory of, in my family, this stuff matters. And I think that's what we all got to do to take it up a notch. And you also talk about how people elevate that to a more institutional level, how people are doing that in schools. Can you just give us a couple examples? I love the one of the people bringing the babies into the classroom. It's my to- favorite, my favorite. The most brilliant things are happening in Canada. I walked into a third grade classroom, if you can imagine this. I walked in, and all the kids were sitting around a great big green rug, excited because their teacher was coming. And they all said, she's going to be here in a minute. And they were so excited. I've never seen such eager kids. Well, the door opened, in walked the teacher, and I sat there with my mouth open for the next 30 minutes because the teacher sat in the middle of the green rug. The teacher was an eight-month-old baby named Clara. The children have adopted the baby for the year. The real teacher was just sitting there waiting for the mother to arrive. But what they're doing is they're looking at the emotional literacy progression on a baby. So the first question, can you imagine, is the teacher says, how does Clara seem to feel today? And all the kids are zeroing in. Oh, I think she looks frustrated. Well, how do you know she looks frustrated? Fabulous, because, well, her hands are like this, and other kids have, I think she's looking really anxious because she's looking like this. Wonderful things because the children were starting to first understand this thing called emotional literacy. But when I asked one little boy, I said, why does this work? He said the most brilliant thing I've ever heard a third grader say. He said, it works because empathy is a verb. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you don't learn it on a worksheet. It's not like a word of the month, you know. You got to see it and feel it in order to get it. We're seeing it and feeling it with Clara. That's it. So simple. That was Michelle Borba, author of Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. So a couple of years ago, we aired a series called Start the Conversation. Our idea, kind of like Make America Dinner Again, was to try to bring people together who are on opposite sides of a divide to talk with each other, not over dinner, but in a radio studio. One of my favorite conversations was between Lacey Jane Roberts, who used to produce for the California Report, and her grandpa, Tom Tyler, who lives in Bozeman, Montana. He joined Lacey from a radio studio there, And Lacey, of course, works in journalism. Her grandpa doesn't believe the media can be trusted. Grandpa. (laughs) How are you doing? Hi, dear. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up, Grandpa. I grew up in a very strict democratic environment. And I changed after Jimmy Carter was president. There one thing, interest rates went from 5% to buy a house to 19, 20%. And I couldn't afford to be a liberal anymore. You know the saying, and I kind of believe it's true, if you're not a liberal when you're 19, you don't have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 50, you got no brains. I think Donald Trump is the best thing to happen for a while. Tell me why. He, he's doing things, you know, and, and people complain about his Twitter. I love his Twitter. Because I'll tell you, he can't come out and say he was taken out of, of uh, context. He can't say that because he's putting it out himself. You and me have always 
gotten along. And I think that we've always been a, a lot alike. So I'm wondering, what, what did you think that I would grow up to be? Hmm. Not a journalist, that's for sure. Mm, because, like, you didn't watch the news, or? <laughs> you know better than that. <laughs> well, that's all I do is watch the news. <laughs> I know. I keep it on till noon, and then I put on the old Western movies at noon. Why Why do you keep Fox News on till noon? Well, I got to find out what's going on in the world. I'm kind of stuck out here in the hicks, you know. Not that I can change anything. It's just that I like to know what's going on. So what do you see that's going on in the world right now that, that you care the most about? I wonder about, you know, your journalism is, I, I think, a tougher job than it used to be a few years ago. Yeah. Because lying seems to be a normal anymore. And as a journalist, you're going to have to figure out who's lying to you and who's telling you the truth. And that's not going to be easy. Do you think that the media is doing a good job of that right now? No, I just don't. I, I don't believe anything the media says, nothing. They put one thing out and then it comes out later that it was a, was a lie. So you think the media is biased? I, I think they're crooked. I think they're liars. They report what they want to report and it don't fit their uh, agenda. They don't report it. What do you think about me being a journalist? Well, honest answer, uh, you don't get no participation trophies from me. I, you know, when I when I see what you do, I'll answer that question. And if, if it agrees with my agenda, you'll be okay. If it don't, well, then I'll maybe give you one star instead of two. <laughs> if you write something I don't like, I just won't read it. See, this is what I'm afraid of is that is that there's multiple different versions of the facts depending on who you talk to. I want to make things that, you know, are closest to facts regardless of if you think that it's something you disagree with. You know, they're the facts. What, what are the facts? How do you know it's a fact? Well, I mean, it might be something you believe, but can you actually say it is an absolute fact? Journalism isn't an art. It's a practice, right? Like, you source things from multiple sources until you can confirm it from as many places as you possibly can. You know, you try and get at it from every angle so you can zero in on what's true. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just skeptical of everything anymore. Well, the media, they, they're in a world all their own. There's no hope for it. Why? Like no hope whatsoever? <laughs> None. Zero. <laughs> I guess that comes down to you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I I know you believe in it or you wouldn't uh, put all the effort into into going to school. And and I believe you'll do a good job. I just, you know, I, I guess I should be from Missouri because my attitude is show me. <laughs> okay. Well, I will do my best to show you, Grandpa. Okay. You're going to get a little more credit probably than you deserve. <laughs> uh, you're not going to get an A-plus unless you earn it. Okay. Except from Grandma. Grandma <laughs> will give you an A-plus for everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gramps, I, um, I love you. Drive safely home. I'm going to the bar. No, you're not. <laughs> I will drive safe. Love you. Just an update from when we first produced that story. Lacey Roberts is still in journalism. She's now a producer for Radiotopia, a show called Over the Road, and a new show called Rebel Eaters Club. She says her grandpa still doesn't trust the media.
So sometimes people from really different worlds meet each other totally by chance. That's what happened to Paul Barnett and his friend Armando Rivera. Back in the 1980s, they actually met at a grocery store in the Central Valley. Armando is deaf, and he taught Paul how to sign, and they've been really good friends ever since. You're going to hear a woman interpreter translating Armando's side of a conversation with Paul now. Armando also makes these vocal sounds when he signs, so you're going to hear that too. Well, let's see. I was in the grocery store, and I was looking around, and... I noticed someone there and saying, excuse me, and then the, are you deaf? Oh, no, you sign. I knew the alphabet, and he was struggling with the clerk in the store. And right. so I, you know, I, I, being a social work student, I thought I was going to save the world. So I, I jumped in to uh, try and interpret and the little that I knew. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a nice encounter. I wanted to learn a little bit more of the sign language. And so uh, out of uh, a week later, his mother calls and says, do you remember the deaf uh, gentleman you met that you'd like to visit you? And I, I thought, well, sure, you know. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I forgot that part of the story. And first three words that he taught me were yes, no, and tomorrow. And if you think about it, you know, you're, those are probably the three most important words. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah you've got a point there. And about your mother and father, uh, how did they communicate with you when you were growing up? There was no signing. I was trying to lip read, but no signing. Oh, okay. Um, when you moved here to Fresno um, and... You uh, started work in the fields. What kind of work did you do? Grapes? So we picked grapes. Peaches. I mean, it was a variety of produce that we picked. So describe a typical day, like um, when you were working in the fields, what time would you have to get up in the morning? Oh, gosh. Oh, about three. It was three in the morning. How old were you when you started working in the fields? It started when I was um, really, when I was 16 through my teen years. Um, describe what it was like, you know, working in the vines. Was it, uh, did you see spiders and was it dirty and dusty? And Oh, God, there were spiders, there were bees, there were, you know, snakes, there was everything. And then you're looking at all of their droppings and so forth. Yes. Oh, at the end of the day, I was all, basically all black, filled with dirt. I mean, you could even feel the dirt in your nose, in your nostrils, because wow. when you're out there picking and you're breathing, you're inhaling all the dust and the dirt. Uh-huh. Mondo, you told me a story once where uh, your family was picking grapes, and uh, there was two rows. My father and sister and brother were at one row, and myself with my mom and other sibling were at the other row. So it was three against three. And so what we do to alleviate the time is we'd create a race out of it, a competition, each of us to see who would finish the row, you know, which team would finish it. My father was happy when I was on his team because it meant, you know, his team won. You know, I'm lucky that uh, I met a native speaker who... I took the time and effort to teach me a different language, so I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, so we've been friends for 35 years now. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty fun. This has been really fun. Armando Rivera and his friend Paul Barnett in a conversation we first aired back in 2017. Their story came to us as part of a partnership with the Henry Madden Library at Fresno State and StoryCorps. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Susie Racho is our director and had help this week from Amanda Font. Our engineers are Seal Muller, Danny Bringer, Chris Hoff, and Rob Spate. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor, and our intern is Ariella Markowitz. Special thanks this week to Ryan Davis, to the Exploratorium in San Francisco, and to Robert Lee Dixon and Louis Hammonds at Urban Alchemy. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and the members of KQED Public Radio. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.